0: Watchers in the 4th Dimension.
1: I don't even know your name. Smith. Dr. John Smith.
0: Right, cut it open. You, sir, are a nitwit. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the 4th Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And it's time for another season retrospective as we look back on the incredibly short season seven. Before we get started on that, though, Don's going to take a very quick look at the mail. Don, take it away.
2: Beginning with our bonus episode on Quatermass 2, J.M. Casey wrote us to say about Brian Don Levy as Quatermass. He did a decent job with what's written, but in retrospect, certainly the shoehorning in of American actors into Hammer Productions from this time period sometimes seems a little weird. I would agree. He also says he's never really understood the practice of doing things like changing people's names for the credits or to hide where they're from. He says the suggestion that Americans won't go see a movie if there's no Americans in it seems a little bit insulting. Yes. Yes, it does. Moving on to our most recent episode on the Silurians, J.M. Casey also writes... Um, and he's he's talking about the book, the novelization that came out, saying it was written by Hulk himself, so perhaps some of the things that he wanted to bring across in the script got lost, but he was able to add them into the novelization. It says, for one thing, and this is never mentioned in the TV dialogue, and you can't tell visually, but the lost Silurian, the one with asthma from the beginning, who gives everyone such a world of trouble, is captured by Quinn. He's actually the young leader. So throughout the rest of the book, it's implied that he has some kind of PSD, and that's why he's being so stubborn and hateful and just generally a jerk
0: okay i have the book sitting on my shelf so i'll have to check that out
2: i think that makes a lot of sense he also is mentioning julie's understandably not desired term of apes is used so much in the book there's a lot of racism on both sides and asks wasn't christopher eccleston always referring to humans as apes which seems a little less justified since we're allegedly his favorite species and all that Yeah, I don't think it's cool when he does it either. No. And finally, from Instagram, Dr. Who 60s, 70s, and 80s says, Yeah, the music is really something, isn't it? Blyton used medieval instruments to emphasize the ancient nature of the Silurians. I think we all felt that a lot of the music was good, and then a lot of it was really annoying. So it was very much a mixed bag. Sometimes it worked, and sometimes it didn't. Yes, maybe.
3: (laughs) 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 We will get to that later.
0: We will. <laughs> yes, we will. All right. Thank you, Don. And as a reminder to everyone, we do love to hear from our listeners. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at Watches4D at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watches 4 d So with that, we will go ahead and get started. If you've listened to one of our season retrospectives before, you already know the drill. But for those who don't, we look back on the season with a series of qualitative award-style categories, followed by a recap of our scoring and metrics, and then we answer a few questions from our social media pages. For our awards, we will answer in reverse alphabetical order, so Riley goes first, followed by Julie, then Don, and finally myself. We will go ahead and jump straight in, And to start us off, we have favorite and least favorite story, Riley.
1: My favorite story, I'm going to go with Spearhead. When you consider all the work that it had to do with a new doctor, a new companion, restricted setting, and the whole new structure for the show, it is really quite impressive that they were able to also do those things and make it entertaining. So I'm giving that my favorite. And least favorite, I'm going with Ambassadors of Death. I'll point this as the worst uh, instead of the Silurians because the Silurian Plague plot line made the story break out of being stuck and being cramped because Ambassadors felt really cramped, you know, with Liz being taken hostage and it just feels like you're just going from one closed area to another. And out of a bunch of real a-holes this season, I think General Mortal Duty was the worst with Stallman right next to him. So I'm going with uh, least favorite, Ambassadors of Death.
0: All right, Julie, you're up next.
3: All right. Well, I do agree with a lot of points about Spearhead. My favorite is Inferno. I just enjoyed it. I really like the kind of, we'll call it what if type stories. I know that in the long run, there's a lot of things that don't end up mattering, but I don't care at the time. It does. And then my least favorite is Doctor Who and the Silurians. I don't need to talk about the music and the sound effects too much because we'll talk about that later. And I just really didn't like all of the racism and all of the other issues with that and how it ended with the Brigadier just uh, setting off bombs and potentially killing all of them or at least trapping them. So that's my least favorite.
2: That's fair enough done. My favorite was probably Spearhead from Space. It did set a new tone, a new direction for the show. It was shot on film, so it looked great. The Autons make a great and visually memorable opponent. We get our first glimpse of the new Doctor, and it's got a comedy yokel. (laughs) What more can you want? As far as my least favorite, this is difficult because this is not my favorite season of Doctor Who that we've watched, but I don't think there's any real terrible serials in it. But my least favorites balance between Ambassadors of Death and Silurians, and I'm probably gonna go for the Silurians. Mainly for all the issues we mentioned before, like the soundtrack and all that kind of stuff. But it's not a bad serial. It's just it could have been better.
0: And with that, Don, Julie, I'm with you guys. My least favorite of the season is Doctor Who and the Silurians. Again, it's just bad soundtrack. And candidly, I think in general, this is a very strong season. And it's just the weakest of what is a pretty strong bunch for me. It was still one that I was able to watch and enjoy, but it just it didn't quite have that spark that the rest do for me. And in terms of my favourite, I'm with Julie. It's Inferno. I love everything about it. I was pretty enthusiastic about it last episode. The tension's wonderful. The parallel universe is pretty cool to explore. I even like the Primords as campy as they kind of are in their full green werewolf goodness with Primord Stallman gurning at the screen. But I just love it. It's a fantastic story. So Julie and I, we're on the same page this time around. Okay, so next up, we have best and worst moment. There's no shortlist for this. It can be anything that happened over the course of the season. So Riley, we start with you.
1: Well, best moment I would say would be the wheelchair escape and the spirit from snow. Uh, it yes. is not that. <laughs> I am going with the end of episode six of Inferno, the really heart-wrenching part of seeing these people in this parallel world that have found a way to get over the world they've been raised in to actually go out and help the doctor escape despite the fact they're facing certain extermination is uh, really just the kind of heart-wrenching drama that I was used to on New Who and it shows up here in Classic Who. My least favorite moment would be the reveal of the motivation behind general Moral duty, wanting to destroy the Ambassadors and the rest of their race. It's very weak. It's nonsensical. I mean, Ambassadors has some cool moments, but if only they had a tighter, more logical story. I mean, it has some good stuff, but the motivation for him is just terrible.
0: Julie, over to you.
3: I like how Riley went with something that was really meaningful. And for my best moments, it was not going to be anything meaningful. I really enjoyed, not going to lie, Liz running along that river, water, whatever have you, (laughs) with her hat and go-go boots, because Mm -hmm. that was beautiful. I loved it. And then, obviously, I'll just add a second one, is having my ship be confirmed with Petra and Greg getting together at the end of Inferno because I ship them so hard. My least favorite moment was any time I heard that incessant beeping in the Silurians.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> that's it.
2: I think that's going to be a recurring
0: theme. <laughs> I thought you were probably going to hold that off for worst use of music, but oh, uh, no, I guess we're going to get too. that
2: several times.
3: Yes. Okay.
0: <laughs>
1: A multiple award winner. Yes. Yeah.
2: You can win in multiple categories.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of winning in multiple categories, done. Oh, I thank you, sir. This is
2: kind of a surprise for me as far as my best moment, but it's the one that is kind of silly and it made me laugh. And it's actually in Ambassadors of Death when the doctor has arrived and he finds the missing astronauts and they're all just sitting around watching a game or think they (laughs) are anyway. I liked it because you would expect them to be in a cell or, you know, being captured and they're just sitting there just hanging out, just being a bunch of guys. I thought that was funny and a well done twist. My worst moment, aside from the obvious thing of any time Stallman was on screen in Inferno, <laughs> which pretty much ruined that serial for me, I have a tie, and I'm tying them together because they're both visual effects related. Mm-hmm. The fake dinosaur in the Silurians, <laughs> because it ripped me right out of the story and made me laugh, much like the squid fight in Spearhead <laughs> from Space,
1: where, you yeah. know, where, he,
0: where he fights the nesting consciousness. It was like, oh, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I think that's a pretty good call, On From my perspective, my best moment, I'm going to go with something really cliched, and it's the Autons escaping from the shop window in mm-hmm. Spearhead. I know that it's frequently cited as one of the most memorable moments in Doctor Who, and I think there's a reason for it, which is why I'm going for it. I think it's absolutely iconic. And in terms of worst moments, and this kind of ties into Don's squid fight, it's every time Pertwee gurns ridiculously. (laughs) He does it (laughs) at least once a story. And whether it's the squid fight, whether it is getting hit by the Silurian's third eye, I think in the Ambassadors of Death, it's when he's heading into space and then Inferno when he's heading into the parallel universe. I think it's all right occasionally, but once every story is just a little much. Which kind of takes us into our next category, which is Best Lead Actor. And we have nominations for this one. We have John Pertwee as The Doctor, Caroline John as Liz Shaw, Nicholas Courtney as Brigadier Lethbridge-Stewart, and new edition of John Levine as Sergeant Benton. Riley, take it away.
1: Best Lead Actor for me would be Nicholas Courtney. He had to come in as the only main this season who had actually had been on the show before with his last appearance in the invasion, and he had to take on a really strange task of being a non-companion character that was a series regular. And I think he absolutely nailed it. I think it was really a great job. And I, yeah, I don't think there's much more I can say. He showed a lot of range too, especially in Inferno.
2: No man can argue across a desk or into a phone
0: like Nicholas Courtney. Julie,
3: <laughs> <laughs> Riley, you stole it from me ah i agree i think nicholas courtney did a fantastic job especially you start off in spearhead when he gets introduced to the new face of the doctor and for a second he's like what and then he's like okay well i buy it (laughs) let's keep going and being able to pull that off and it makes sense is one thing and then obviously inferno just the range that he showed with that was wonderful so i agree nicholas courtney
0: Okay, done. Are you going with Nicholas Courtney or are we going to hear something else from you? You are going to hear something else from me. I don't disagree
2: with anyone because he's great, but I went with Caroline John. I think it was nice to have an actual smart companion that she might have screamed once during the entire series. And I liked her character a lot. It was She was a breath of really fresh air. And I'm sad that she won't be with us next season. And I knew she would not get the opportunity. And so I thought I wanted to give that to her ear.
0: Yeah. And for exactly those reasons, I'm agreeing with you, Don. I think it's Caroline John. I really, really enjoy Liz, and I wish we had a lot more of her than we do on the show. I love when we have a strong, intelligent companion, and Liz fits that bill really nicely. And I think Caroline John plays her well. I think Caroline John shows the same acting versatility as Nicholas Courtney, playing parallel universe version of Liz very well as well. So I'm with you, Don. Outstanding. Okay, next up, we have Best Supporting Actor. As a reminder, this is anyone in the season who wasn't nominated for Best Lead Actor. So Riley, as usual, we will start with you. For
1: Best Supporting Actor, I'm going with Sheila Dunn as Petra in Inferno. I have to say she made the unbelievable believable and convincing me how anyone could be torn about quitting working for that jerk Stallman. (laughs) Um, All joking aside, though, she had a lot of good scenes. Uh, She definitely showed a lot of range. And I think she did a great job in it, absolutely. And I uh, know I'm not saying that because I too am married to Douglas Canfield.:
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, Julie, your nomination.
3: So the funny thing is is that my nomination is David Newark who played Greg Sutton. <laughs> so the other half I, for some reason, just really loved his character. And I thought that he had his head on his shoulders in both universes that he was in in Inferno. And I just really enjoyed him always sticking up to Stallman when no one else would. And I just appreciated him for where he was at. And, you know, I just don't know why I ship that, but I do.
0: All right, Don, I look forward to your nomination of Olaf Pooley as Stallman. <laughs> <laughs> He played what
2: was on the script, apparently, but that's not my nomination. Shockingly enough, I'm going for John Abinari as General Moral Duty. Wow. Oh. Okay. I don't like how the character was scripted. I found mm-hmm. his motivations to be questionable and the logic of he didn't have to do any of that. Despite that, the actor really brought it with a role. So I found him almost believable, despite the fact that I found that aspect of the script to be just completely laughable. He did a really good job and just brought some gravitas to a questionably written role.
0: That's really fair. And I think that's the only reason the character actually works is because the actor is so strong. So good pick, Don. I am going with Hugh Burden as Channing. I think he does a fantastic job at making this character seem very eerie and alien. I think he is one of the many things that makes Spearhead from Space work so well. And I could genuinely believe him to be a threat. I think he works fantastically and serves the needs of that story really, really well. So, yeah. Next up... We move on to Best Villain. We do have nominations for this one. From Spearhead from Space, we have the Nesting Consciousness and the Autons. From Doctor Who and the Silurians, we have the Young Silurian. From the Ambassadors of Death, we have General Moral Duty Carrington. And from Inferno, we have Don's clear favorite, Professor Stallman. So, Riley, we'll start with you. Best
1: Villain, the Nesting Consciousness and the Autons, which does sound like a great name for a Doctor Who-themed band.
2: I was thinking the same thing. You stole my joke.
1: Damn it. (laughs) Great concept. Great look. Wish there was a bit more of a motivation for them outside of just world domination. But I don't know. Maybe I guess that works. Sometimes a pure push for wanting to take over the world without any headier thoughts than that can be terrifying. Worst would be General Carrington. Surprise. Number one, he is just another bad boss. Number two, his motivations are ridiculously stupid. And number three, he is way too repetitive with his dialogue. And by the way, I had a moral duty to choose him (laughs) as the worst (laughs) one.
0: Well, we must all follow our moral duty. Julie, you're up next.
3: All right, best is I'm going with just the Autons. I'm leaving the nesting consciousness out of it. (laughs) I didn't really need to see the squid thing going on. If they had just stuck with Autons, I would have totally bought everything. And whenever you make creepy dolls, the villain, then yes, absolutely. It's going to terrify me 100% of the time. Loved them. And yes, obviously the worst. General Carrington. Moral duty. What? What? No, (laughs) that's it. Nothing else needs to be said.
0: Well... Done. over to you.
2: I would like to say the best would be the Young Silurian, so I can make a David Bowie joke, but they weren't. And much (laughs) like everybody else, I've got to go with the Nesting Consciousness and the Autons. They're great, they're creepy. Yes, they're creepy. That's mainly the reason it's so good. Uh, The worst is obviously for me, Professor Stallman from Inferno. I think I would have liked that serial a lot more, and I guarantee once that episode airs, I'm probably going to get some hate mail from the internet about... (laughs) even though I gave it like a a seven or something. It's a good story, but oh my God, I I needed a better villain.
0: We all have our preferences, Don, and yes, I'm sure someone online will uh, flame you for that. All right, I'm with you guys. Best villain is the nesting consciousness in the Autons. They're in the background for a lot of it. They're not really the focus of Spearhead from Space. The focus is to introduce the new Doctor, but they do everything they're meant to do. And as has been mentioned by some of you guys, the Autons are wonderfully creepy. Even though they're kind of basic villains because they serve a very specific purpose, they work really, really well. In terms of worst villain, I'm going to go with the young Silurian. I was pretty, I think, scathing of him when we watched Doctor Who and the Silurians. I've already listed it as my least favorite story. And I think he's just kind of an asshole. There's nothing more to it. I mean, Don, you say that's about Stallman, and that's exactly how I feel about the young Silurian. I think he is petulant. He has zero respect for authority. And I just think he sucks.
2: <laughs> so what we're saying, Doctor Who writers of the past, give us a villain with good motivation. Yes.
3: Yep.
0: We now move into our famed category of Best Director and the Richard Martin Award for Worst Director. The Dicky. The Dicky, <laughs> And our nominations here are Derek Martinus with his final outing on Doctor Who in Spearhead from Space, Timothy Coombe for Doctor Who and the Silurians, Michael Ferguson for The Ambassadors of Death, and Douglas Camfield and an uncredited Barry Letts for Inferno. Riley.
1: Best Derek Martin is for Spearhead. First time in color, new doctor. He has advantage or disadvantage of depending on who's behind the camera to work on film, unlike other people. New actors, responsibility of introducing your doctor and doing it all in just four episodes. That's wow. I also want to point out again that the use of that diegetic shot amongst the media when the questioning of the Brigadier was really inspired, really clever. Something that I hadn't seen the show done before. Worst, I feel kind of bad about this because I don't really think there was really any Direction that was poor, to be quite honest, because Michael Ferguson in The Ambassador's of Death has one of my favorite shots in this entire season of the Ambassador in the spacesuit with the lens flare walking to the base, you know, outside. I thought that looked stunning. It was very striking. So I think his problem was that he just had a story that kept him really boxed in. I did enjoy the outer space shots, and the scenes where the capsule was being investigating were good, but I think the script kind of let him down. So he could only do so much.
0: So you're going with Michael Ferguson? Yes, Michael Ferguson, yes. Julie?
3: All right, to just mix things up a bit, I'm going to go with Best Director of Douglas Canfield and Barry Letts for Inferno. I just really like what they ended up doing with Inferno. I really liked some of the shots that they did. There was a lot of running around in the industrial complex. There was a lot of fun things that were done there. And they did some decent stuff with some of the design and whatnot. So I just want to change it up a bit. Where's directors? Timothy Combe. Hands down. Uh, just you got this really terrible dinosaur thing. I don't know who made that decision, <laughs> but he probably didn't help with that. And I don't think it helps that that's my least favorite episode. So that's kind of why I just kind of throw him in there. But that's just what's going to happen. I'm sorry.
0: Yeah. Don, over to you. This is tough.
2: But I think for best director, I did have to go with Derek Martin's Spearhead from Space for all the reasons that Riley said. For the worst, I don't think there was any poor direction within this particular season. There are serials that I like better than others, but I don't think there was any that were particularly poor or had poor directions. So at this time, I don't feel comfortable with slipping anyone the (laughs) (laughs) dicky.
0: Okay, for me, I think this season has three incredibly strong directors, or technically four incredibly strong directors, and one who doesn't do anything wrong, but doesn't do anything spectacular. So my dicky is almost by default, and that's to Timothy Coombe. Again, I think the other three all offer a lot. He's just competent. He's good, but there's nothing spectacular there. There are a couple of missteps. The dinosaur, as Julie mentioned. I think there could have been more tension. The so-called chase across the moors didn't didn't really have that much to it. So it's more just disappointment there. In terms of best director, Don, Riley, you guys said Derek Martinus, and I agree with your reasoning. I think he's excellent, but he's not my pick. I think Michael Ferguson does some really good things Mm. in Ambassadors of Death as well. I think Riley mentioned the very iconic shot of the ambassadors walking towards the base with the lens flare, and that's fantastic. There's that stunning model work. I think he does a really, really good job as well. There are those wonderful fight scenes too. But for me, it's Dougie Canfield and Barry Letts. I think I said during our episode on Inferno that in the hands of lesser directors, Inferno would have been nowhere near as good as it was. The way that they build the tension in that story, the performances they get out of some of those actors, and the fact that Barry Letts had to take over from Douglas Camfield at such short notice and still did a great job, I think speaks volumes. And for me, there's no alternative. It's them. 100% them. Okay, and then finally, of our categories, we have best and worst use of music. So, Riley.
1: Worst use of music, we'll go ahead and get this done first, I think, because we're all in agreement on this. The Salarians, anytime, whole lot of beeps, boops, and kazoos, just the whole thing. So I don't think I can isolate one scene in particular, it's just all over the place. Best use of music, that slow, sexist saxophone (laughs) number used when escaping an ambassador's of death. Oh Oh, man, there's so much good music in that serial, it's a lot of fun, but that piece in particular, very nice.
0: Okay, Julie.
3: Yep, as little as possible to speak about for worse. It's definitely the Silorians, just especially in the last three episodes, I believe, is when it really got really bad. For best use of music, I'm going to go with an entire serial here, and I'm going to go with Inferno, which is interesting because they use stock music. But their use of stock music was on point and everything fit in Inferno. There was no misstep. And I find that impressive because typically what I've seen and I have notes of every single serial where there's at least one thing where I'm like, this doesn't make sense. This music, why is it here? I did not have that for Inferno.
2: I dig it. Done. This is so easy because everyone's covered everything. Worst. It's obviously the Silurians, but there is some good stuff in there before the really heavy drugs kicked in. (laughs) There's some interesting things in this Silurian soundtrack, but not all of it. The best, I'm going to have to go with Inferno as well, because while it wasn't composed specifically for that serial, it was music that was used appropriately to enhance the scene it was in, and that's all you can really ask for.
0: Yeah. So ultimately, I'm going to agree with that. I was very tempted to troll you guys a little and go with the unit theme from Ambassadors, which I do genuinely love. I really do love that theme, but I don't think it's the best use of music in the season. I really do agree. The choices in Inferno really help ratchet up that tension.
3: I just want to say one thing about the unit theme. I adore the unit theme, but it doesn't make sense as a military
0: theme. Done.
2: We'll call it the unit love theme from now on. (laughs) Arranged by Barry White.
0: (laughs) All right. With our categories out of the way, very quick recap on our metrics. We had three instances of the camp count all from Inferno, mostly the various gurning from Pertwee, Stalman, and Primord Benton. So that takes us up to a series total for Doctor Who of 87.5. We had no additions to the I'll Explain Later count, and one addition to Quarry Quarry from the Ambassadors of Death. So that takes us up to 10 quarries used so far in Doctor Who. And one styrofoam mine. One Styrofoam (laughs) mine. Okay, and then taking a look back at our scoring for the season, Inferno had a story average of 8.5, making it our highest scoring. Spearhead was in second, 7.75. Ambassadors with 6.5, and then the Silurians with 5.75, giving us a season six average of 7.13. Don, your highest scoring was Spearhead from Space. Your lowest was a joint between Doctor and the Silurians with six and the Ambassadors of Death also with six. And you gave Spearhead eight. I don't think I mentioned that. Julie, your highest, Inferno, 8.5. Doctor and the Silurians lowest with 4.5. Riley, Inferno for you, 8.5 as well. And the Ambassadors of Death with 5.5. I gave Inferno 10, and Doctor and the Silurians was my lowest with 6.5. In terms of comparing that to other seasons, that's actually our second highest scoring season, looking at the averages following season two. But again, this one is such a short season, it's a little bit skewed because of that. Mm -hmm. Having gone through that pretty quickly, we move into some questions from social media. We will start with one from The Candyman on Instagram, who asks, favorite cliffhangers? Question mark.
1: My favorite cliffhanger was in Ambassadors, where I don't know why I like it so much, but Doctor has the whole cut it open line. It's just the dramatic delivery of the capsule after the sudden revelation just felt really impactful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. It's an odd one, but it
1: works. I think it's Pertwee's delivery of the line that makes it just stand out to me for some reason.
0: For me, it's obviously episode six of Inferno. I know that was mentioned as a best moment, but that cliffhanger is just stunning. And the fact that we don't see the Doctor escape until episode seven, brilliant.
3: I like the one, is it episode two or three when he disappears in Inferno? Episode two. Yeah, I really enjoyed that one because it was the lead up into a whole bunch of good cliffhangers because I think Inferno had the best number of cliffhangers through all, all the stories. But that one I just really enjoyed.
2: I think I would have a better memory of cliffhangers if I wasn't binge-watching everything. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the one where Liz is running across the... What was that thing? Damn, lock. Something. something something very dramatic that no one would ever normally run across in real life, you know, with the two thugs. and I thought that was pretty cool.
0: Next up, our good friend on Instagram, Kastur Barusa, asks us, what do you think was the most political serial out of all of season seven? Silurians, easy.
3: I don't know if I'd say it's that easy, especially with all of the subtexts of fascism and Inferno. There's some political things happening there as well.
0: Yeah, along with a lot of hubris. Mm -hmm. I think with all of the undertones of xenophobia in Ambassadors of Death, there's a lot of politics there. This was around the time Britain was starting to consider its relationship with Europe and whether or not we wanted to be part of what would eventually become the European Union. So I think there was a lot of politics there as well.
2: So all of them except Spearhead, but they are infiltrating government figures. So yes, (laughs) we don't know.
0: We are sorry. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the Part We Era guys.
3: It was going to be the most political, especially in what we think of politics because it is earthbound. So that was going to happen and in almost all of these, it was in some sort of scientific center in which they had to bring in unit in order to help things out and there was always some some leader from London who is actually running the show. So obviously it's going to be very political.
0: Yep, exactly. Next up, we have a couple of questions around the companion's role. David Campbell asks us, what is your take on the companion's role as an audience identification figure? Does a season need a 20-something lead playing a teenager to be a hit with family audiences? Terence and Barry replace Liz Shaw with a younger and less educated character in Joe Grant, believing her to be a more relatable audience identification figure, especially for younger viewers. Personally, I'm a fan of Liz Shaw, but do you agree with the production team? And then along a very similar line, Adam Wright also asks, did Liz Shaw even feel like a companion? The companions tend to feel like the audience inside of the show, but Liz Shaw was so scientific.
3: Okay, I got it. Okay,
1: fine. Yeah, either you or me. Either you or me. You can go (laughs) ahead. I think we both are, I think we're on the same page on this one, Julie.
3: How dare they say that someone has to be younger and less educated in order to be relatable to the audience? That is a disservice to the audience and how dare they? You've got intelligent companions such as Zoe and Liz and then you have the adult companions such as Ian, Barbara, Stephen who are older companions but still work. So I think it is honestly insulting that they say that they need someone who is younger and less educated to feel like a companion. So I disagree. I think Liz Shaw does feel like a companion and I love that she was scientific.
1: To add on to what Julie had to say, I think what's missing here is that part of the wonderfulness of the show is its scale. It's supposed to be a universe of possibilities Alien worlds, everything you can possibly think of. So if the writers can't make any human companion, any type of human companion, relatable to the audience, that's a fault of the writers. You should be able to make any human being relatable in the show. I think maybe the difficulty is that Liz was stuck on Earth, having Earth adventures. If you put her with the Dodger as the only human out somewhere dealing with, you know, something crazy, that would make her more relatable.
2: I completely agree on all counts. I think the only time we really needed an audience identification figure was in basically the first series where we're interested in the concept and we're taking very normal people at the time and putting them into this crazy sci-fi world. But by this point, we've established the concept and there are a lot of other sci-fi shows out there at the time that don't feel the need to add that audience identification figure. As Riley said, it's all about the writing. Just give me a character with good motivation I can care about and it's good and as far as liz being a companion i love her as a character she was smart she was capable she wasn't a peril monkey i think my only argument that she might not be a companion was because she technically didn't travel in the tardis but that's really just splitting hairs
0: yeah to me she's 100 a companion She's the Doctor's sidekick for the season, fundamentally, and whether or not a character travels in the TARDIS, as some people say the criteria should be, I don't think that applies. You know, it's who's the Doctor's primary sidekick or sidekicks, and here that's Liz. Now, if we need an audience identification figure, or at least someone's help provide exposition and ask what's happening, I would argue the only story where we might have needed that this season was in Spearhead, which is designed as a soft reboot, and we get the Brigadier acting in that role providing some continuity from the prior era, but also introducing the Doctor to Liz and to the audience, or, or at least the new Doctor. And I think he works just fine in that role. I can see that
2: because not only do I spend a lot of time behind a desk, but sometimes I've had to wear an eye patch.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. All right, the next couple of questions we have are around the alternate universe. Surprise, surprise, it's a big thing for everyone. Anthony Carroll says, One of the wonderful things about Inferno is the alternate universe versions of established characters. Do you think this setting could work as a whole season's worth of stories? And who or what would you want to see alternative versions of? And what would they be like?
3: I don't think it would work for an entire season. It would get tiresome and it would get confusing of which is your main universe and which is your alternate version. However, I love what if storylines. Maybe it's because I love fan fiction. I don't know. That could be (laughs) it. Am I really looking forward to Marvel's what if? Yes, I absolutely am. (laughs) But I don't think for an entire season, it would just it would get it would be too much.
2: I also think it would be hampered by the fact that you know that at the end of it, he's going back to the regular universe. And so you've essentially got a whole bunch of stories that don't really matter. So the only thing you can really do is to have the alternate universe trying to invade the current universe or something along those lines, just to have it have some kind of weight.
1: Yeah, I agree. I don't think this setting would work because outside of the issues that you have already stated, it's just too damn depressing. I mean, we have a story of a young Liz who wanted to be a scientist but grew up in an authoritarian country and lost her dream. And I don't really want to know how the Brigadier lost his eye. It's probably something terrible.
2: Somebody <laughs> shot it out with a paperclip from Rubber Band in the office.
3: <laughs> now, to be fair, Deep if cut. they wanted to do a what-if storyline and have Jamie being Laird,
2: We almost got through a red- <laughs> <laughs> <expectation> <laughs> almost made it through the season. Almost that. Uh, uh, all right, put a quarter <laughs> in the Jamie jar.
3: Well. They asked the question of, if you could see an alternate version, what would it be? (laughs) And I'm not gonna lie, that's what I would want to see. But again, I think it could work, like, you know, would it be cool to see Ian and Barbara like, married somewhere in another storyline, but not necessarily be the good guys? That would be an interesting take. Or Vicky finally leading her revolution on Earth. So I just think that there are opportunities for it, but just not in one season, but a story per season could potentially work or something along those lines
2: what if jamie finally taught the second doctor how to play the bagpipes <laughs>
1: Yes. <laughs> my apologies i have to ask this question julie in the evil parallel universe does jamie have a goatee or like a twirly mustache what is his signature <laughs> evil look i want to know he
0: wears pants it's terrifying
3: <laughs> <laughs> that 100 wears pants
0: Okay. that's it. So I don't think a whole season in one parallel universe would work. But if they did a follow on season for this and kind of took a quantum leap approach of the doctor trying to get back to our universe, but he keeps going to different alternate universes, that could be kind of fun. They did that. It was called Sliders.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Sliders is amazing.
0: I haven't seen that show in years. But yeah, that could have been fun. You know, maybe one universe, the Brigadier's a hippie. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. All right. Next up, Alan Seiler has a direct follow-on to that question and asks, Could Doctor Who make the alternate universe a recurring setting, analogous to Star Trek's mirror universe, that could be visited in different timeframes by different Doctors with its own continuous chronology?
2: Assuming the world in that one didn't blow up. (laughs) then probably if the writers really wanted to
3: i think having it be its own like with a continuous chronology uh, i don't know that i like that necessarily but again like i kind of mentioned would it be cool if every once in a while they did sort of this alternate universe approach i would like that but for it to be completely mirror i don't know if i want that
2: for one thing, to do that, you have to assume that mainline Doctor Who has something resembling a <laughs> continuous chronology. Yeah. I reject your thesis, sir.
1: I agree with Don like, on, based on the previous answer that he gave on the previous question. It seems very difficult because we all know they're all going to end up being barbecued. So you have a very tough time of trying to let that go into a direction that means something, even though we already know, like, I guess their big emotional... Revelation they have at the very end. So you already know you even have that moment as well. So it's kind of hard to decide what would be your climactic moment then.
0: Yeah. I know in the 90s, one of the novels, The Face of the Enemy, takes us briefly back into the parallel universe where it suggested that not everyone was barbecued and that the Earth didn't blow up. It was just a lot of devastation. But I don't like that. I think having it destroyed at the end of Inferno is really impactful. So I don't think that this parallel universe would be good to revisit. But Doctor Who has established a multiverse, and I'm genuinely surprised that we haven't seen more sidesteps into other parallel universes. I know we get it in Tenants Era, but we don't get a lot of it. And that surprises me.
2: We don't ever really see the alternate universe version of the Doctor, if there is one, either.
0: Right. Mm-mm. Next up, we kind of start moving into some more structural questions from here around the structure of the season and some of the concepts. So we'll start with one from Nathan Laws, who asks, do you think that the Sherwin approach of an entirely Earthbound series would have worked for more seasons or had the concept played out by the end of season seven?
2: I don't think Sherwin's concept was an Earthbound series. I think his concept was, let's rip off Quatermass as hard as we possibly can there's no real limitation in having an earthbound series. The problem with it, to me, is that they had a structure that was based on those Quatermass stories. I mean, just about every other story in other media is in some way based on Earth. It's not a limiting factor. But if every story has some bad boss in a vaguely industrial complex... <laughs> And by the, I mean, this is a short season and by the end of it, I want my show back. It's not the concept, but yes, this is played out.
1: It's played out. It's absolutely played out. It's just, like I said before, with the answer regarding Liz, the show is about unbound potential and possibility and any sort of limitation on the show really is a hamper.
3: I 100% agree. It's totally played out. If they wanted to do it like a couple seasons later with a different doctor and take a slightly different approach, so it's again not just industrial complexes and bad bosses, you could make it work. But if they had said, Oh, season eight is going to be the same, I'd be like, Guys, I might take a break from this podcast and I'll come <laughs> back when we get the TARDIS back.
2: I have to freely admit, as I've heard some people say, that Inferno is the best serial of this season. Season and possibly all of a Perkby's era, that really bothered me because I don't know if I can take much more of that structure. That's not a knock against that serial, but if that's how it's going to be, I don't know. Especially because I think if we've got this earthbound thing, we could have something like uh, the doctor doing a variation on, you know, Kolchek the Night Stalker and, and, you know, investigating that kind of weird stuff, sort of an early proto X-Files
0: thing and, you getting a bit spookier and not playing the same beats every time. I'm with you on that, Don. When Malcolm Hulk was asked to write for this season, he freely said that he didn't want to because he felt that the Earthbound concept only really lent itself to two main themes, mad scientists and alien invasions. And I think next season we see that's not necessarily the case. But I think tonally, this probably is the show at its most mature and gritty. And watching it in order, done, I'm inclined to agree with you. Much as I really love Inferno, at this point, I'm almost craving something a little lighter and more jaunty and fun again. And I think everyone will be fairly pleased to hear that there's kind of a soft reboot next season with a radically different tone. So I think, yes, the concept, whatever that concept may be, if we want to just refer to it as ripping off Quatermass, it had played out by the end of the season. I'm with you guys. Mark Heffernan's up next. Oh, hi, Mark. Oh, hi, Mark. (laughs) Oh, hi, Mark. In addition to all the other changes, the episode count went down from 44 episodes in Season 6 to 25 in Season 7. My question is this. Did the cut in episodes improve the quality of the show and in what ways?
3: It did and it didn't. You (laughs) could tell that there was some more production value. There was a whole bunch of on-location shooting. There were more helicopters. There were a lot of these action shots where you have a lot of choreography and a lot of individuals, a lot of extras. However when you got only four stories and some of them are seven episodes long, well, it dragged more than some of those 44 episode seasons because the stories themselves just dragged. So I think yes and no. (laughs) Some things worked, some things didn't.
0: So Julie, you just answered the next question, which is from Adam Wright and kind of ties into this. So before Don and Riley give perspective, I'll read that, which was, do you feel season seven suffered with three stories that were seven episodes long and seemed to drag on?
2: Yes. Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) But I do feel that I'm going to twist the question a little bit. I don't necessarily think it improved the quality of the show, but I think it achieved what they set out to do, which was to keep the show from being canceled because they can, I believe the technical arm is amortized the cost of the serial by having, you know, seven episodes per serial. So fewer overall stories and kind of spread it out and make the show look, well, okay in places. And do it cheaper so that they could keep on making them. So I may not like having seven episodes, but they did what they set out to do, which was so they could keep on making them.
1: I think that it's all about the script. I keep going back to it. You know, I don't care if you got less episodes, more episodes, you got a good script. It's going to work. You can have green werewolves or black and white killer Christmas trees. If It's a good (laughs) script. It's going to be totally, totally fine. I'll sit through a short one or a really, really long one.
2: No, man. Robot Yeti.
1: (laughs) Oh, yes.
0: I agree with you. I think a lot of it does depend on the quality of the script. And I think the scripts for this season, and screw you guys, I like the Ambassadors of Death, but I think the scripts <laughs> hey! for this season were really good. And I think the biggest problem I have is watching the entire season back to back, three seven parties in a row is a little bit of a slog. Plus, we,
2: not Julie, unfortunately, watched Quatermass 2. <laughs> yeah, we did. So we, we had extra Quatermass. I really wish Julie had been a part of that, just so she would know firsthand the experience of going oh my god this is the same thing
0: by the way dear listener i wanted to make riley and don also watch the quatermass experiment and quatermass in the pit but they told me they would quit if we did that so i backed
2: down he keeps us locked in a windowless basement and makes us watch this stuff and record the (laughs) podcast and if we get through all of classic who he will call off the snipers aimed at our families please send help
3: i escaped and he found me again (laughs)
1: By the way, (laughs) tune in this Christmas for our Quatermass 1 and Quatermass in the Pit for our Merry Quatermass episode.
0: (laughs) But yeah, I I think those seven parters watched in isolation are entertaining, but I think they are difficult to watch back to back. So Adam, yes. Mark, kind of. (laughs) I agree with Don's answer to Mark's question. (laughs) Okay, we have another couple of structural questions, one from The Whovian Gal on Instagram and another one from JM Casey. So The Whovian Gal asks, if you could shorten one of the seven-parters to four parts and add a three-parter, which serial would you shorten and what type of story would you add? While JM Casey asks, would you have liked to have seen one more story in this season? Or is Inferno a pretty effective finale for this phase of the show's history?
3: First off, if I could shorten one of them, I would shorten ambassadors.
2: Because screw you, Anthony. (laughs) Yes.
3: (laughs) I think it's fine, but I think that there was a lot of filler with Liz getting captured and all of that. But I don't know that I'd shorten it to three or four. I would maybe put in some bottle episodes like The Edge of Destruction, where you had like that two-part story where it's all self-contained, you have only the main actors, and it was a very very intriguing story. So that's personally what I would do, and that would get away from the industrial complex and bad bosses. And then if I were to have another story, would I want to change Inferno? I I thought it was really pretty effective for me. Best thing to do to make that a better finale is to have the doctor disappear at the end and not actually show back up. That would be a better finale than him
2: landing in the rubbish heap. You mean as a season cliffhanger?
3: Yes, as a season cliffhanger.
2: Just imagine what would happen if they did that and the show didn't <laughs> get picked up again. <laughs> Brutal.
1: Yeah. I have to agree with Julie. In fact, Julia, it sounds like you and I have to write a big finish about our Edge of Destruction season seven story because yes. I have the exact same note. <laughs> that's something that's really missing in this season, is that we really need to get more interaction between our three main characters. It's something that the show is really craving a lot, is that type of relationship. It seems it's just purely bidness and not personal. And I also think that Inferno ended fine. It's the right serial to end the season.
2: Yeah, I haven't really thought about what kind of story I would add, but my my note would be something not like the rest of them <laughs> and something... And I, I don't. That's not me knocking the rest of the episodes. It's just, it's very much of a pattern. I would like to see them do something different. And I didn't read this question ahead of time, so I don't know what that would be. And I think it would probably slot in somewhere in the middle of the season because I think Inferno is a a really good
0: story to end the season on. So I have a slightly controversial answer to this. Firstly, I would shorten Silurians because Uh, that's fair. Yeah.
3: It's going to be one of those two.
0: You can just start out with them just wanting to kill everyone and releasing the virus. It doesn't need to be seven episodes.
2: I would have just restructured Silurians. It can be the same number of episodes, but I would have shifted some stuff around.
0: I'm sorry. Go on. But for what I want to do, I need to cut Silurians because I like ambassadors too much. (sighs) I would add a three parter between episodes two and three of Inferno. What I would do is have the Doctor leave with the TARDIS console at the end of Episode 2 and go off and have a three-part adventure on another alien world for three weeks and then come back and land in the parallel universe. I think that could be kind of fun. It would give a good in-universe out and let us do something that's not Earthbound. The downside is it does break a little bit of that tension in Inferno. But everything else from Episode 3 onwards of Inferno, I wouldn't change. I think it's a really effective finale.
2: Yeah, I think that would completely ruin Inferno structurally. Yep, yep.
0: Regardless of that, I would find a way to get off of Earth yes. for All three right. episodes and futz around with some Daleks or something. I said, I, I, I can know.
2: deal with him being Earthbound. It's just I don't need another industrial no. complex with a bad boss or mad
0: scientist.
3: And we don't need Daleks. Let's not bring them back.
0: I said Daleks or something. It doesn't have to be Daleks.
3: Mm, bring the board back. Yes. It'll be fine.
0: It's mm. Riley's opportunity to bring back the sensorites, goddammit.
1: <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs>
0: Okay, we're getting close to the end, guys. Alan Seiler asks, now that you've had one full season of Pertwee, do you see a change in the way monsters are introduced and characterized from the first six years?
1: I love monster questions. I think so. More particularly, they seem to be a bit more mysterious in a way. I mean, the green werewolves with the green goo in Inferno is never fully explained. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be explained. It's creepy on its own. And the Silurians have a lot more depth, at least how they're portrayed or how the script lets them play out in that at first, they're these weird creatures, and then you get to a little bit more understanding about them and maybe have an opportunity to sympathize with them. That's a change as well. And the Ambassadors are the completed story circle of that in which they are sympathetic. So, yeah, I would think there is a change compared to just straight-up, goofy-eyed monsters trying to harm you and cause people to scream.
0: I feel like what you're saying, Riley, about goofy-eyed monsters is predominantly restricted to the Troughton era. I feel like that's when the monsters just become monsters to defeat. You know, you look at Mm -hmm. uh, the Hartnell era and the Sensorites. And much as Julie, myself and Don found that story a slog. Sorry, Riley. But you look at the Sensorites themselves and they're not inherently bad. There is a bad Sensorite, but as a race, they're not all evil and out to destroy the humans. Same kind of with the Zabi in the web planet. You know, they're not inherently... inherently bad the
3: problem is is that since this is earthbound anything that's not human is almost inherently going to be bad because they're likely doing something that's going to hurt humans and it's a problem with it being earthbound that's why that they're introduced the way they are
0: but if you look at the silurians you've got two factions you've got the young silurian who just wants to kill all the humans and you've got the old one who's actually open to living in peace and then the ambassadors themselves they're not the real villains of that story so I think this is almost a return to that Heart and Lyra style of monster. Yeah, at
2: least the Silurians, they aren't necessarily a monoculture. And yeah. as much as we've kind of ragged on that serial, it's not a bad serial. And I would like to know more about the Silurians. They, they intrigue me because I like that idea of an ancient race that's slumbering and waiting for their chance to wake up. I think that's a good thing. The Ambassadors, same thing. I, I did think that they were a little too obedient, which is one of my problems with that serial. But, yeah, I kind of forgot what Alan's question was because the way it was asked me, it it's not like he had something in mind. <laughs> it felt a very loaded question.
3: It's characterized, I guess, a little bit differently, but not enough for me to feel like, oh my gosh, there's been a drastic change in the monsters. Yes. I I don't know.
2: Monsters are now not introduced with a hearty handshake, but more of a bit of a social distance and a hearty hello.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. And then for our very last question, um, we've, I think, probably mostly already answered this, but it feels like a good question to end on. And that is our good friend JM Casey asking, does season seven really feel like Doctor Who?
1: Just barely, <laughs> in my opinion. It's the Earthbound thing again. That's just me. I don't need to add on more to it. I do like Pertwee as the Doctor. I like Liz. I like the Brigadier. I just want my stories to have more potential.
2: Yeah, this doesn't feel like Doctor Who to me. Like we've said a lot, it's Mass in Doctor Who cosplay. And <laughs> yeah. I, I miss being inside the TARDIS. I miss having companions. I miss going to different places, different times. I miss that show. This isn't a bad show. Yeah. But it doesn't feel like Doctor Who to me.
3: Yeah, and it does have a lot of, we'll say, unitness. I think they played up on that so much that it didn't feel the same because, yes, we'd already met unit before, but this was very much a, they were mostly running the show and just letting the Doctor be there. Just not some place that I really like to be. I'd rather the Doctor be making the decisions of where and where he wants to go.
1: Yeah. So on behalf of all of Watchers and Fourth Dimension, we are striking until Classic Who gives us our show back. <laughs>
0: I agree with you guys. Doctor Who has never felt like this season before, and it will never feel like this season again. This is a unique season. It's a lot darker and grittier and more mature. And I would say, Don, I agree. I think you summed it up perfectly. It feels like Quatermass in Doctor Who cosplay. And I think everyone will be a lot happier starting next season with the direction of the show.
3: The one thing I do have to say, though, Anthony, is that I don't necessarily not like the darkness or the grittiness of it. It's the same story over and over again, and it's earthbound, and it's bad bosses. You can have dark stories, just not be the same dark story.
2: Yeah, it's padded, too. Mm -hmm. That's the whole thing with seven episodes. It's it's like, okay, you're having the same
0: argument over and over. Just get on with it. I just feel like this season is a bit relentlessly dark and gritty. You know, there's not a lot of fun here. There's no Jamie and Victoria having a mess around on the beach with some foam or anything like that.
3: There's no character moments. Yeah, and there's very little okay, humor that too. in it.
0: I mean, I, I
2: feel like I don't know Liz very well, but by the same token, I don't feel like I know the Doctor very well after a full season.
1: And you know, it's funny that the biggest character moment for all three of them was literally the last scene of the entire season with the whole rubbish bin joke. Yep. Yeah. And him telling mm-hmm. off the brigadier.
0: Exactly. And then he came off as an ass. So that's not really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not so great. I think you have our answer, J.M. No, it doesn't really feel like Doctor Who. All right, that brings us to the end of the questions. We will be back next time. We're actually going to release a bonus episode where Julie and I will do some big finish. But after that, for our next regular episode, we'll be back for the introduction of a new recurring villain as we kick off season eight with Terror of the Autons. But for now, as always, thank you very much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watches in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippec, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Beeps, Boops, and Kazoos, was recorded on Wednesday the 28th of July, 2021. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favourite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watchers 4 d And you can also email us at watches4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favourite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you're the one editing the show, you get to have the last word. The Ambassadors of Death is a great story, and I don't care what anyone else says. Mwahaha. 哈哈哈哈 <laughs>